that's it. You're in your car. You've got your headphones in. You're listening. No, you're not in your car with your headphones in. I mean, these are the various stages of how you listen to this show. You're in your car. You're doing something around the house. You've got me in your ears and you're like, it's time. Let's go. Let's do this. I need to listen and learn and understand more about this specific album. Or you're just infatuated with hearing my voice talk into your ears. And if that's the case, thank you. I appreciate you more than anyone. No, I'm just kidding. Um, Welcome. It's Waterproof Records time. And if you've clicked on this episode, you already know by the title what I chose to do. But this decision did not come to me easy, and I'll explain why. I love this band, Faith No More. I love them so much. But I had a tough call as to which album would be the first album that I talk about on Waterproof Records. And I hem and I hawed, and I, I hem and I hawed, I hem and hemmed and hawed. Um, and I landed on this one, and I'll explain why in a minute. But let's kick off the theme song, and we'll get down to the shenanigans. So right now, it's time to talk about Faith No More, The Real Thing. Away we go. Things are going to change, I feel it. If this that kind of body, And theme song accomplished. Uh, you'll have to pardon me if I clear my throat or I cough during this show. I am getting over a little bit of a cold. I got onto a plane, and within minutes, I could feel my throat getting scratchy. It just feels that way. Don't worry, it's not COVID. Um, just a regular cold. And uh, it's crazy when you travel nowadays. I feel like it's just inevitable to catch something the moment you are in that tube in the sky. And um, anyway, so I'm just getting over it a little bit. I have the remnants of the cold. So you might be able to hear it in my voice, and I might occasionally have to take a drink of water to prevent myself from coughing, or if I cough, I will turn away and not blow your eardrums out. This is my second attempt at recording this episode because I tried to record late yesterday, and the dog across the street just would not stop barking. So I stopped myself, and I said... We'll just try this again when uh, things are easier to record. But right now, there is currently a storm outside, a rainstorm, a winter storm. If you don't live in Southern California, we've been given this kind of winter storm warning. Now, that's taken with a grain of salt because people around here tend to freak out about the weather for no reason. Um, But it is quite unusually cold. um, And the mountains are getting covered with snow up there. And they're saying that snow will even fall on some of our elevations around 1,500 feet. So... It is cold, it's rainy, um, but I'm in here with you. We're snuggled up and warm, and we're talking about The Real Thing by Faith No More. But before we get into that, let's talk about DistroKid. You guys hear me talk about DistroKid in every episode, but I'm going to tell you some cool things about them. They're my sponsor. I love them so much. What is DistroKid? It's a way for you to get your music out into the world. It's easy. Um, they've got, they make it so simple for you to upload your song or your album. You can do individual tracks. You can do a bunch of tracks. Um, you get a YouTube channel, official artist channel for free when you make your distro kid. So when you put your music out there, they give you that official artist channel. You can send your credits to stores for free. You can use the free Spotify canvas generator, uh, Spotify canvas to make your Spotify release pop. There's so many features 
that they have. They have create promo promo cards to promote your release on social media. You can make a mini video to use on your socials or wherever. So there are so many things that uh, DistroKid does that helps get your music out in the world. And uh, I use them. I think they're amazing. And if you go click on my link, which is distrokid.com slash VIP slash waterproof, I link it on every episode. It's on my socials. If you look in my bio, I have link trees and you can get to it pretty easy. So distrokid.com slash VIP slash waterproof, you get 30% off your first year. 30% off. That's more than a quarter off. That's a significant savings. So they're my sponsor. I love them so much, and I just want to give them a shout out. But now, it's time to get into the real thing. The real thing. Are you a Faith No More fan? I am a Faith No More fan, and uh, it really has to do with how incredible I think Mike Patton is as a vocalist and performer. I've never had the opportunity to see them live. I would love to see them live, but I missed the chance in the 90s, as you know, because you follow the show Um, I wasn't seeing every concert in the 90s, and then they broke up in 1998, so thankfully they've reformed, making music again, Uh, you know, some version of the lineup is reformed, Um, but I am hoping I get a chance to see Faith No More tour, I'm sure they will, because I bet it's a great show, and I bet Mike Patton just crushes it out there on stage, but I alluded to this being a tough call for me right up top as to why I chose The Real Thing versus Angel Dust. Because if you had to tell me, I mean, if you had to ask me, if you had to tell me, if you had to ask me what's my favorite Faith No More album of all time, it's Angel Dust. Hands down. That is my favorite one. It came out in 92. That was an album that just really, really was kind of surprising and different, and I love it. But when I was considering which album to talk about, I was like, I kind of need to talk about the real thing first because that was my introduction to the band. And I don't always follow that rule because you know that I choose between my favorite album over the one that I'm introduced to and vice versa. But I just felt drawn to it's got to be the real thing out of the gate to talk about with this band. And this is an album that came out in June 20th of 1989. And it's kind of mind blowing to think about when you look back because here we are 30 years plus Um, from the alternative music explosion of the 90s. And you think about 1989, you know, Epic, the music video and the song that even if you know nothing about this band, you've heard that song. There's just no way you've you've gotten through your life without hearing, you know, you want it all, but you can't have it. You know, you've heard that. Sorry for that terrible rendition of it. Kind of nasally. That song dropped that music video in 1990. January, I think, and it took the world by storm. And if you think about it, it really is like the thing that sets the stage as to where we're going in alternative music, the grunge explosion, the alternative music, the the whole tone of everything. This is like the foundation if you're talking about 1989. Now, I've gotten some shit from people when I post the videos of like how Nirvana changed things, cause you're like, oh, there were other people in underground scenes and other music scenes that were changing the game. Of course, um, I know that, I know that. A, a lot of this has to do with how it affected the mainstream. You know, it's not that my podcast is supposed to be a mainstream podcast where all we talk about is mainstream music. I'm just here to talk about, I think, times 
where the music impacted me, and hopefully that will connect with your youth. Or if you're very young and you listen to the show and you want to learn more about the album, that's kind of why I do it. It's to just open it up a little bit. You know, we're metaphorically opening up the tape case, unfolding the liner notes. We're opening up the CD case. We're looking, we're reading, we're exploring. Back when I was a kid, the only way to really do this about a band was, you know, I would get a copy of Guitar World or Spin or Rolling Stone. There was no internet to dig up about your band or you'd watch MTV and you'd see Kurt Loder um, give you a breakdown as to what was going on with this band and what was happening. A lot of it was rumors. You know, you'd hear stories about these bands and they'd spread from one person to the next. It was really the only way you were going to pass information along. And so this show, I think, is kind of like taking that time capsule, that time where we're exploring, but I have the luxury now of the internet and the streaming, and you can go and see for yourself and read about it, but we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about what this album meant at the time. So the history of Faith No More goes back to the Bay Area, San Francisco, 1979, so uh, a year after I was born. That's a long time ago. I'm an old, old feller, and uh, 1979, it's kind of amazing to think about. And the early iterations of the band, the original lineup that's in Faith No More, and back then they're called Sharp Young Men originally, and then they became Faith No Man, and then there was even a version where it was Faith, period, no man, then Faith, period, no more. And then we land on this name in like 1983. But the original lineup of the band is two other guys, and then in the early days we get Roddy Bodum, the keyboardist. We get Billy Gould on bass, and we get Mike Borden on drums. And they have been there ever since. They've been in the band from that earliest days until now. And when Faith No More began, they didn't have Mike Patton on vocals. You probably knew that, but if you didn't, it had a bunch of other kind of vocalists coming in, how they're going to figure out the sound of the band. And here is a fun fact for you. In the early 1980s, when Faith No More was just getting started, and they're exploring what vocalist they're going to have. For a short stint, like six months, I believe in 1983, 84 it might have been, Courtney Love sings with Faith No More. She's the lead singer of the group. She's very young. And just recently, some footage is online on YouTube that you can see of like a public access TV recording of Faith No More with Courtney Love. And you will see they're kind of in this hippie, you know, wearing dashikis and flower child kind of stuff. And you'll learn that that was them trying to be, or Courtney Love, I believe, was trying to be punk rock by doing something that nobody was doing, right? To do this flower child kind of hippie feeling was so counter to what was going on in the hard rock and punk scene that it would be so weird it would be punk in of itself. So you can see this performance, and one of the things that I noticed right out of the gate is you can hear Mike Borden playing the drums, and it's like such a signature Mike Borden sound. You can hear those drums, and you can go, that's a Faith No More percussion right there. You know, he has this, this kind of tribal floor toms kind of sound to his drumming that I think is very uniquely his, and you can hear it in this performance. But when you watch it, you go, okay, I can see that this was like kind of experimenting and playing around. But shortly after this, you know, she's no longer in the band and they get Chuck Mosley. And Chuck Mosley, 
um, brings a really unique style to the band. And then that's what they released their first two albums on that gets them the attention and kind of out there. And this is all in that San Francisco Bay area. And this is a time period where, you know, they're in good relationship with the Red Hot Chili Peppers, because I'm sure you know that there was a feud between uh, Mike Patton and Anthony Kiedis for many years. But back in this early day, um, they're they're friends and they're working on stuff together. And Chuck Mosley is the lead singer of the of the band. And they've got this crazy style. You know, uh, they've got We Care A Lot and Introduce Yourselves or their albums. But Chuck Mosley's behavior is pretty erratic in this era. He punches I believe it's Billy Gould during a show. He falls asleep on stage. He's just getting to be too difficult to manage um, as a front man. And they, they fire him. They kick him out of the band. And along this time around 19, I think it's like 1986 or 87. Um, they are introduced to Mike Patton and he is in his band, Mr. Bungle. Um, if you don't know Mr. Bungle, they are crazy cool experimental all over the map band very cool and that's Mike Patton's band and he brings a lot of that energy to Faith No More he brings that kind of chaotic um, not knowing where we're going to go next blending of styles and genres but the real thing is just this interesting window of time for Faith No More between the Mike Patton era and the Chuck Mosley era and what happens is you know they they meet Mike Patton at a pizza parlor. Um, and I think, you know, while they're once they've gotten rid of Chuck Mosley, they're looking around for other singers. I believe I haven't fact checked this, but I believe that Chris Cornell was a consideration along the way as somebody that they wanted to possibly get as their vocalist. They were just looking for a really great um, singer for their band. But they get Mike in the band. But at this point in time, they have already recorded um, all the music for the real thing. This is 1988 and they've recorded all the songs. Everything's been arranged and figured out. It just doesn't have a front man and singer. And by the way, at this point in time, it is Mike Borden on drums, Billy Gould on bass, uh, Roddy Bodum on keyboards, and they've added Jim Martin on guitar. And Jim Martin is in the band now. And Jim Martin really came from a heavy metal background. He brings that metal touch that you hear on The Real Thing and then again on Angel Dust. Jim Martin um, was good friends and played in bands in the 70s with Cliff Burton from Metallica, um, who passed away in the um, 1980s. But they were good friends. And you can see in the music videos, you know, uh, Jim Martin for the epic video, I believe he's wearing a Cliff Burton t-shirt. And so... There was a friendship there. There was a, a, a past with playing in these heavy metal bands. One of their bands, I think, was called Agents of Misfortune. And that was Jim Martin and Cliff Burton. And, you know, they knew some of the Faith No More guys back then in, in a band called Easy Street, which I think was taken after the name of a topless bar in the area. So anyway, there's a lot of like, you know, these bands knowing each other back then. But Jim Martin's in the band, brings that metal touch to it. And they've got all these songs written. And they hire Mike Patton, who I think is 19, 20 years old at the time. And he basically, they're like, look, you know, here's the songs. And they don't give him a lot of wiggle room in terms of changing anything musically. He just basically got to dream up lyrics and words and melodies to go with all these songs. And in two weeks, he does it. 
in two weeks, which is so impressive when you listen to the real thing and you think these are lyrics and themes and vocal melodies that were added on top of uh, songs that were already written. Doesn't that blow your mind? It blows my mind because when I was growing up, when I was in my teens and 20s, I would meet people that would have songs and have demos and they would be interested in me as a singer and they would give me a track or two and they'd be like, come up with something vocally or a melody to be over the song. And that's a really hard thing to do um, when you're not part of the writing process, which I write my own music, I write my own songs. And you're, when you do that, you're a part of the melody creation over the music. It's all brought together cohesively and you are really from the foundation all the way up. But to be asked to throw things on top of something already completed, I found that to be challenging. So when I heard that that's what Mike Patton did, I was like, that's so impressive. Because all of these songs, it sounds like those melodies and vocal lines were meant to be a part of the album. They sound like they belonged from the beginning. As if they were writing the songs and he was like, what about this? You know, that's just impressive to me. But I heard that uh, along the way, or at least I read along the way, that some of the themes and lyrics that Mike was writing at the time were dark and, you know, maybe a little bit on the fucked up side. And so they were like, we got to maybe have some metaphors and analogies here because I I can see where you're going lyrically and what you're trying to do. But let's try this. Let's try that. Which it Mike Patton is seems like kind of a an unpredictable wild force of nature. You know what I mean? He seems like one of these people that experiments and plays with um, not only vocally, which he famously has, I think it's like a six octave range. You can hear his voice going deep and way up high on songs. And when I was singing Epic earlier, he sounds much better than I do. Um, But he really experiments around with that. And lyrically, I remember hearing things in Faith No More songs and being like, what? What did he just say? I mean, I think it's on Zombie Eaters on this album where he says, and wipe my butt and piss me. And I remember being a young kid and being like, did the singer just say that? Is the singer talking like I would at 11, 12? You know, it was really surprising. But the whole album, I want to see if this phenomenon applies to any of you. I would describe the real thing for a, a while in my teenage years as being a top-heavy listening experience for me. And what I mean is, the first copy I had of The Real Thing, I believe, was a dubbed cassette tape. It wasn't the CD. I didn't buy the album. Somebody gave me a copy of it. And this would happen from time to time, where you'd have your side A of songs, and then you'd spend your time in your Walkman or wherever you were listening to your music, and you would listen to side A, And then you would get interrupted and then you would pick up this album again later and then you would start over at side A and then you would so rarely get to your side B. I don't know if this ever happened to anybody else, but this was a phenomenon where some albums became top heavy. Like I would experience so much more of the music on the first half and then the second half wasn't as listened to as often as the first half was because of the format of a cassette tape. The same thing happened for me with Metallica's uh, Master of Puppets. Um, and I can probably think of other albums before you get to CDs and before going from the first side to the second side was kind of seamless. I would imagine this phenomenon was also with uh, records as well. It's not like you didn't have the att- uh, intention of listening to the second side, but you would listen, 
you would go do something else and then you'd be like, oh, okay, I need to start this album over again. You know, you might be thinking to yourself, why not just start at side B and then just do that cycle over and over again? But I think I always wanted to hear an album from start to finish. So you'd start it, get interrupted, you'd start it, get interrupted, start it, and so on and so forth. So I think about the real thing as a young kid being like, oh, from out of nowhere, epic, falling to pieces, surprise you're dead, and all the way to zombie eaters. I know those like the back of my hand. Now, years later, I would get the real thing on CD, and then you would go in deeper in the real thing, Underwater Love, The Morning After, Woodpecker from Mars, War Pigs, and Edge of the World would get a lot more time and attention. Actually, I may have split that wrong. I may have gone all the way through the real thing on the first side. Anyway, doesn't matter. But one thing I do remember very clearly about this album, and it's almost embarrassing to admit, is that War Pigs, I thought, at my young age, was a Faith No More song. Mainly because I hadn't heard the Black Sabbath version. I was introduced to War Pigs by Faith No More first, and I didn't realize it was a cover until a little bit later. And so when I think of War Pigs, this version comes in my head a lot. Now, I love the Black Sabbath version, but I'm sure that's happened to you also, which is you experience somebody's cover of a song way more than the original. Same thing happened with Landslide by the Smashing Pumpkins. While I think I knew that it was a Fleetwood Mac cover not too long after hearing it, um, it was definitely one of those ones that I heard it so frequently as the Pumpkins cover that you kind of like, it almost replaces the original. And that's how War Pigs by Faith No More is. I still love this version so much. Um, the original War Pigs is great, so don't come after me and say that I'm saying not saying it's great. It's just my experience. But that was an example of a song that I experienced by them first. But this first half of this album, from out of nowhere, epic and falling to pieces, those first three songs, those were singles. Those were released as singles. And I believe that they started out with from out of nowhere for a music video. And I don't think it got any attention. I think they spent money making the music video. Didn't get any, you know, the play that they wanted. And then I think falling to pieces, which had that whole medical angle. And this is a true story, by the way, early on in the band, um, Mike Patton during a live concert takes a, a bottle a beer bottle to his right hand and it cuts it and it cuts it real bad. I can't remember if it's on his left or right hand, but he, he severs open his hand with a, with a broken beer bottle and he basically has a scar from his palm all the way through his wrist. And from that uh, injury in 1988, he still has no feeling in that hand all the way back before the real thing comes out. And I believe that some of the surgery and stuff um, from that procedure landed in the falling to pieces video, you know, of, of his, of his hand in surgery. So those two songs come out as music videos. And while I do remember seeing the music video for falling to pieces, it's epic. It's epic that comes out and hits the world January, 1990. And what a wacky, weird piece of music, you know, this is, this has got metal. This has got rap. It has piano closing it out. It is a wild song. And the video is wild with these surrealist, you know, imagery, lightning bolts and eyeballs on hands. And then who could forget the flopping fish at the end? For those of you who aren't familiar with the epic music video, you know, you get to see 
Mike Patton jumping around on stage. There's rain falling. He's got colorful top on, the long sleeves. I remember one of the things that I thought was really, really cool was he had his long hair and it was kind of shaved on one side. And, you know, there's like a slow-mo shot of him like, you know, pulling his hair back and you can see the lines shaved in the side of his head. And I remember thinking that was so cool and how bad I wanted to do that. I wanted the long hair. I wanted to shave the side. I just thought he looked like such a badass. Um, but that video, crazy energy jumping around on stage as he's rapping. And it it ends famously with the fish flopping around on the ground at the end. Now, Animal rights activists got furious and it became a very controversial video because of the flopping fish. Um, The band said, you know, that fish was out of water for seconds because it was filmed in slow motion. So the fish wasn't harmed. I mean, I mean, you know, probably sucks for the fish, but the fish wasn't wasn't being agonized for, you know, minutes on end suffocating to death. It was a anyway. It's one of those things that I can understand a sensitivity to it. But back then um, they got into some trouble and it became a controversial part of the video. But there is a story about the fish and there is claim by the lady herself, Bjork, that that is her fish. And the story goes that she was coming from a poetry reading. In the in you know I think in 1989, she was coming from a poetry reading, and somebody had given her a fish, given her a gifted her a fish in a bowl, and she had it. And on her way home from the poetry reading, she stops by I want to say it's Roddy Bodum's house, for a party. She goes to the house, and then that's the last time she sees the fish. She leaves it at the house, and then it turns up in the in the video. Now, years later, I think it's 2016, Mike Patton worked with Bjork on something and they asked him about this claim that the fish was hers. And he he just basically said, well, that's Bjork's story. So we're sticking to it. Uh, you know, if that's what happened, then that's what happened, because nobody really, truly remembered uh, where the fish came from. But it's quite possible it was Bjork's fish Thought that was pretty cool. Um, but epic is this video and it's so different. It's so unusual and it opens the door. At this time, there's a lot of people experimenting with the rock and the rap elements, and there's aspects of their of their song with those riffs that that Jim Martin's bringing in there. That's metal. So some say that this song really opens the door for a lot of the new metal that would come at the end of the '90s. You know, the Corn, the Limp Bizkit, the the blending of those styles, and a lot of those guys have really alluded to this being the real thing, being a breakthrough super inspirational, important album for them musically. And you can see why. Um, Another thing that happened during this time because of Epic and the music video was this is the origin of the feud between Anthony Kiedis and Mike Patton. And I do believe it it is quelled and gone away as of the last 10 years. I believe it's finally over. But basically, the Chili Peppers liked the real thing They liked the band, but once Mike Patton comes on, they see the epic music video and here's this white dude with long hair who's taking off his shirt and jumping around and has that rapping style and Anthony Kiedis and his bandmates were like, whoa, he stole my thing. He stole my thing. That's that's what they perceive. There's even a famous quote 
where Anthony Kiedis says, like, my drummer's threatening to cut off his hair and chop off one of his feet so he's forced to get his own style. And you can see how there's similarities, but I 100% do not believe that Mike Patton stole anything from Anthony Kiedis. I think that they just had similar sensibilities. You know, being a hyperactive performer, having a lot of energy, and then also being somebody who raps over rock, you know, who, who rhymes lyrics on top, there's kind of this sound and style that comes in your head when you think to do it. You know, if you're, if you're rapping over hip hop and a beat, it's very different than when, you know, there's like, you know, grinding bass and metal riffs and, and this rock percussive section behind you. You feel like you kind of got to force it out aggressively, right? And so I really do think that it was like, okay, yeah, they share these similar things, but I don't think Mike Patton was like, I can't wait to steal this style from Anthony Kiedis. So I think it was off on the wrong foot, misunderstood, miscommunicated. And Mike Patton has gone on to prove himself to be such an incredible frontman, so inventive, so out of the box that you never know what to expect. He could be crooning on a song one moment, screaming on another, you know, singing country style singing way up high way down low all over the place the guy is eccentric and has so many different styles that you can't say he was ripping anybody off because mike Patton is mike Patton. i mean he's got countless side projects um so many bands but that was the controversy and it was a lot of bad things said about each other and then you know, Mr. Bungle dressed up like Chili Peppers, or I think they played naked, or I, I can't remember. But there was a feud, and then there was a festival in the early 2000s that um, the Chili Peppers, like, allegedly got Mr. Bungle kicked off on because they didn't want to share the stage with him. So there was a lot of bad blood and bad things said over the years, and Mike Patton going up on stage and criticizing Anthony Kiedis' drug addiction problem. And anyway, that's where a lot of this feud originated from. But Epic is this song where he kept saying when we were kids, you know, it's it. What is it? And I remember the first time I heard this song, I actually didn't know what he was saying right there. I used to think he was saying when I was a kid, he was saying, now say, what is it? Now say. But he's saying, it's it. What is it? And I was reading the coolest thing about how the lyrics of this song, Epic, really are setting up an entire generation of this dissonance in their lyrics. It feels so good. It's like walking on glass. You know, it's this, it's this one side of the lyric says something like it's going to be a good thing. And then it counters it with something else. And that that would really set in motion. Now I'm not saying that lyrically from the sixties and seventies that there weren't people that were doing this, but in the rock movement and people that were listening they were starting to pay attention to this. Somebody is saying that walking on glass is, is feeling good or lying, crying, bleeding, lying on the floor. So you lay down under, lay down and you do it some more. You know, this is like giving into the pain, embracing it and kind of a joy and a delight between those feelings. And I, anyway, I'm getting lost in the thought, but I hope you understand what I'm trying to say. This, this colliding of being in torment and depression and sadness or pain and anguish and breaking through it and wanting it more. And that is so much of what 90s music was about, was facing it, facing the demon, 
reveling in it, rolling around in it, not hiding, not pretending to be okay. You know what I mean? Like glam and music and a lot of the rock and roll that leads up to this point in time is, is got this polish to it. And again, I'm going to say, I know the punk rockers and the underground scene were also dealing with this, but all of these people were setting in emotion concepts and themes that would change the game. Um, but that song really, really has that dissonance and the it's it. What is it? They were asked in interviews over and over again, like, what is it? And they were like, well, it's it. And I think it's been said that the song was really about drugs and, and, and how that it has both the euphoric freeing feeling and then also the come down that it's both things. It's it. It's it's it is being both miserable and elated all in one state of being. And that is what it's like to be on drugs. So those are some of the things that are written about that song. But um, I'm trying to think of some of the other things that I wanted to say. Surprise, you're dead. No surprise there that that is a Jim Martin riff. That's that that's his influence on it. That's got that rock and roll, that heavier metal side to it. And this album is considered to be kind of one of those groundbreaking metal albums. And I know that that's funny to think about for where we are in the state of metal now, you know, because you've got so many bands like even when I share things about Pantera on TikTok or Metallica or Megadeth and people are like that's not even that heavy compared to. Lorna Shore or, you know, some of these Carn effects and these bands that are just like, it's so heavy. It's so dark or, or bloodbath or, you know, God, so many of these heavy bands are like that, you know, the heaviness now is just next level, but in the metal community, this is considered to be one of those albums that breaks the doors down because it proves that you can be metal without being quote unquote metal. You can experiment with the genre. You can play around. You can have an album where randomly in it, you have Woodpecker from Mars, which infuses like Middle Eastern sounding kind of elements to the riffs. And then you can have like, you know, funky grooves, you know, funky metal in there. Underwater Love. So many of these songs just play around with the format, but you can hear that that Jim Martin riff in there. Now, sadly, I won't get into this too much, but after this album, they go in and do Angel Dust, and that album kind of forces Jim Martin to want to get out of the band. I feel feel like I'll talk about that more when I do an episode on Angel Dust. I have a feeling that if I have a guest on this show about Faith No More, they will want to talk about Angel Dust. So that was another reason why I held off on doing that album is because I feel like if I have a guest on and I ask for albums that were really influential undoubtedly Angel Dust is going to be on somebody's list. But if not, I will do the episode. But this album exists because the band wrote it without Mike Patton. Mike Patton adds his touch on it. And then it's after this album that you hear Mike Patton's influence on the writing process and they explore even weirder, more unusual terrain as a band. And that is why the real thing is kind of considered its own specific thing from Angel Dust and from what would come after. But I remember this album being so important to me on those cassette tapes. And as I listened to the different styles, it really did take me into this space because there's something that links it all together. As disjointed 
as this is and angel dust is the synth the synth elements to it the piano elements really links the whole thing together and it does feel like a band united separate from mike patton bringing a whole concept together and it was produced by matt wallace who'd been collaborating producing their stuff since the early days i think he'd been with them since the beginning and this is one of his produced albums. And then by the time we get to angel dust, which he's working on as well, I think even he was like, I don't know if this is a good idea. You know, this is very unusual, but I love the cover of war pigs. I love woodpecker from Mars. I love the morning after underwater love the real thing. I still hear these lines in my head all the time, you know, surprise you're dead. I remember my brother and I just sitting there in the car and going surprise you're dead. Guess what? It never ends. You know, so many funny memories. I'm trying to think if there was anything else that I wanted to cover in particular about this album, but it is so much of what changes the game. And there were multiple. I I, I want to stress that there were multiple albums that changed the game for many different uh, movements during this time, because if you look at the 90s at a, at a glance, it was such a freeing time to explore and try and challenge and move around genres. And the real thing was the real thing. It was really one of those albums that said, hey, there's no rules. You can do what you want to do. And that is double down on Angel Dust in 92. But in 1989, and, and the world is experiencing this in 1990, it's it's very fitting that it came out in 90 because it's it's saying, yeah, you want to you want to do a metal song with a funk song, the loungy groove. You want some Middle Eastern, you know, instrumentation in the middle. You, you know, you want a, a smarmy snap your fingers song at the end. You know, the edge of the world. So many unique things. But Mike Patton is really, I think. One of the secret weapons of Faith No More. He really is. He was so necessary to be in this band and to take them to another level. Now, Roddy, Mike, Billy, their sounds are also so integral to being the Faith No More sound. Those, like I talked about, the Mike Borden drum sound. Billy Gould's bass is very identifiable. There's just something about it. You can hear that tone. And the keyboards being in a rock band, you know, not many bands have keyboards. So when you're, you know, I'm in a cover band and we talk about doing a Faith No More cover, we're like, well, kind of loses something if it doesn't have the keyboards. Got to have the keyboards it really makes it a Faith No More song. So all in all, this Faith No More, once Mike Patton is involved, is really where I got introduced. I didn't discover We Care A Lot and Introduce Yourself until years later. And I am happy to say that Chuck Mosley, while he did get fired from the band, I think he reconnected with them later on, even did some public appearances and performance with them later. He went on to do his own instrumentation, but but I'm happy to know that they at least were able to come back together and share the stage and be okay with each other because sadly, Chuck Mosley died in 2017 of a drug overdose. Um, which was unfortunate. He, I think it was something that he always struggled with. And he was the, you know, the person who laid the groundwork for Faith No More in those early days for those first two albums. So his work and involvement with the band is, is worth mentioning. 
as a super important part of what put Faith No More on the map. But for me and for many of us, the way that we're introduced to the band is the real thing, or Angel Dust, that era, that lineup. And uh, But I will definitely be doing an episode on Angel Dust. But that's the real thing. I think I remembered to tell you most of the stories that I had about that episode. I hope you've enjoyed it. Um, once again, I want to give a shout out to DistroKid. Make sure you check out distrokid.com slash VIP slash waterproof for 30% off. Um, they are an incredible way to get your music out there. And I'm so grateful that they sponsored the show. I really couldn't keep going and keep doing this without them. But most importantly, make sure to tell everybody. I've been noticing that there's been some really sweet comments on iTunes about the show. And if you want to give me a comment that would help huge, help me hugely. So please spread the word. Please let people know, go comment, go like, help me raise up in the iTunes store. You know what I mean? In the podcast, like, Get, put me on the map. Help me get there. Go in and comment and give me those five stars. Um, I think I, I last I checked, there's like all really nice reviews. And then there was one one star review. So somebody out there hates me. And that's fine. That's going to go with the territory. But hey, let's stop them from hating me. If you've never gone into the store and given me a review, now's your chance. And if you do hate me, at least explain why. Um, I don't know why you would, though. I'm just here to talk about music and have a good time. So thanks for joining me. That's the end of Waterproof Records, and we will see you next time. Things are going to change. I feel it. If this goes be that kind of body, I'm going Waterproof Records. Waterproof.